Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Apparently, we are going to have to revise our definition of glory. Sometimes things happen in life that make us update long-held notions and definitions. Reminds me of the scene from the movie A Beautiful Mind, in which the socially inept genius mathematician John Nash, played by Russell Crowe, haltingly proposes to his girlfriend, Jennifer Conley, by saying, does our relationship warrant long-term commitment? <laughs> In response to this rather sterile and backhanded marriage proposal, his wife-to-be says, um, just give me a moment to revise my girlhood notions of romance. This is not how she had pictured her marriage proposal. Something like that happens in John 2 about glory. We need some revision to what we thought that concept was all about. Glory, so I think of it, is otherworldly. Success on a grand scale. Google image the word and you see someone on a mountaintop, arms lifted in gladiatorial success, the sun shining through them, casting their shadow across the landscape. Humans have had such a hard time conceptualizing glory that they've made it one of their chief characteristics of the afterlife. The saints are in glory. But where does that leave us? Us mothers and grocery shoppers, us tired employees and bored teenagers. We the ones with the heavy arms and the worried hearts. We too are looking for glory. When John narrates the life of the Lord, he always sees the eternal within the everyday, divinity breaking forth in the material. There's a marriage feast. People are drinking and laughing. The waiters scurry about. The wine is good. A good time, as they say, was being had by all. <coughs> Jesus is there too, with his friends, and Jesus fits into the context. He's no killjoy. Who would have ever thought that? One had feared, perhaps, a bit of heavy preaching. Perhaps the bride and groom worried over this as they were going through their guest list. If we invite Jesus, is he going to sermonize to us? But no! Where earthly joy threatens to run out along with the wine, he works his first miracle quietly, ordinarily, unobtrusively, so that even a miracle of God does not disrupt a human celebration. And here we get a window into something often overlooked in Christ's life. We often think, I often think of Jesus as, as, as a moral teacher, as someone campaigning for something good or, or subversive or salvific, turning every bit of life into a teaching moment. But here with the curtain 
on this ordinary event lifted, we see something else. We see how he simply loves human beings. He who is himself human. He loves them, their earth and their joys, the flavor of wine, the carefree laughter from childlike hearts. The gospel writer John tells us that Jesus performed a sign at Cana, which is to say that there's more going on than a simple one-off miracle. The signs in John's gospel, and there's seven of them, are something like prisms to be held up to view the entire movement of Christ's life. And indeed, we can do that with just this sign. The act, this act, opens the gospel, and it'll be completed at the end. You remember the last words of Jesus in John's gospel? It is finished. His entire ministry, his entire life, will be about changing the water of bitterness and grief into the wine of eternal joy. He will preserve the earth, the body of the human being. And notice they will be transfigured, not done away with. When the radiance of divinity shall finally break through, then the earth and the body will not perish, but be confirmed in their sanctity. The wedding guest, this wedding guest, after all, did not come to lead spirits out of a dark dungeon called flesh that holds them fast, but to redeem the flesh forever in its complete transfigured being. This is why the Son of Man goes to the wedding feast. For there he raised up the flesh anew in order to affirm it. He takes the drinking cup, fills it with the wine of the earth, drinks it, and extends it to all these young people who probably have no idea what's going on. They just know there's more wine. But this wedding guest shows us that glory, the fullness and abundance of divine life, isn't some otherworldly provision but a gift that breaks through in an ordinary life. The scandal of Christianity is that it is through the flesh, in flesh, that divinity is seen. Through joy, tenderness, through the wide-eyed gaze of a child, the grace of an athlete, through a kind gesture or a long-loving marriage, material reality, flesh bears the glory. Perhaps you've seen it recently. I'll tell you about one encounter with a lady I visited this past week that comes to mind for me. She was in the hospital, this lady, at the tender age of 98. She was there for her pneumonia, but she was having something of a less than positive experience. She changed rooms every night of the five nights she had been there not able to hear well, being legally blind and having no family in the area, she wasn't able to advocate much for herself. On top of all this, she learned that her apartment back at her senior care living facility was being put up for sale because she was going to be moved to the health unit. She's someone I've come to deeply admire, and I totally cherish every conversation we've had One of the conversations we've had through the years is about how communion, Eucharist, means thanksgiving. 
our practice together is to say three things we are thankful for before communion. There in her hospital gown, full of frustration at her circumstances, feeling powerless and afraid, having no clue what the word home even meant, she asked if I had the elements. And as I set the table for us, she said, I guess this is the part where I talk about what I'm grateful for. And she did. Three things. Now, if you had walked past the room, it would have looked unremarkable. An elderly lady, gown exposing her shoulders, daytime television turned up crazily loud. But here was ordinary material flesh-bearing divinity, earthly life blessed and sanctified, as one person at the end of what she thought was her rope fought through to pronounce gratitude over her life. She had found in her breath and in her being the conditions, the only conditions necessary for giving thanks. For me, you can call that glory. Life is blessed in its material joy, and life is blessed in material suffering. Not because it's easy, not because it's particularly pleasant, but because this wedding guest didn't just feast on the good times. He's the one who was crucified, died, and descended to the grave. In other words, he wants to touch and bless and exalt flesh at every stage of being. Wounded flesh dying flesh, condemned flesh. To feel your material existence blessed and sanctified as precious and worthy of celebration, to find the resources to give thanks in the earth's dark night, to find that your life, when you sense it's coming unglued, is still by you having breath offering you the conditions for giving thanks, that's to find wine overflowing the barrels. That's to taste that heaven meet earth thing called glory.